Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 34, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Again, my name is Rick. I'm author of the recently released book, Spiritual Grit, and the book Jesus-Centered Life, which is sort of a foundational book for this podcast. It's really an exploration of what, what does it look like to live your life in a perpetual orbit around Jesus. It's not as hard as it sounds if you even understand the whole concept of gravitational pull and orbit. If you get close enough to a heavy mass and you get locked into that heavy mass's gravitational pull, you orbit naturally. And the point of this podcast and the Jesus-Centered Life book is, how do we get close enough to Jesus where we get captured by his gravitational pull so the orbit around him just comes naturally? It's not like you have to work at it. It just, you orbit his life with your life naturally. So that's what that's about. And, and that's the same spirit that was poured into the Jesus-Centered Bible. I was the general editor of that. And it's a Bible that has features in it that are designed to help you to orbit around Jesus in that natural, organic way. So today, we finish up our August exploration into Jesus's relationship with Satan and how that infects our understanding of our relationship with Satan, because as my old friend Bob Krulish always told me, we all have a relationship with Satan, whether we like to admit it or not. And it's important to be awake and alive to that reality so that we're in charge of the relationship instead of being a pawn in it. So how does that relationship with Satan impact our everyday life? Because it certainly impacted Jesus's everyday life. There are many, many examples of Jesus interacting with demonic forces and talking about and instructing his disciples to deal with those demonic forces in very specific ways. So instead of ignoring that and treating it as if it was something that once happened that no longer does, we're just trying to enclose it into our everyday life, the same way Jesus intended with every other thing he modeled for us. So today, we're going to explore something that was brought up in both of the previous episodes, something that we call spiritual warfare. And if you're not comfortable with that term, if you're not even familiar with that term, it's something that's been embedded in church language and jargon for a long time now, and it comes from, you know, the, the language of the Bible, that there, there is a lot of battle and warfare language when it comes to the unseen spiritual world. It's scattered all over the New Testament, and that's why so many people use this jargony phrase, spiritual warfare, so easily sometimes, as if, as if we all understood what that meant. So today, uh, the title of this episode is Spiritual Warfare for Dummies. So... Yeah, I don't think you're dummies, actually, but the, the, the implication there is, hey, if, if you think you know something but you don't really know it, then what do you need to know? And that's what we're going to explore today. So what is spiritual warfare, and why is it called warfare in the first place? So Paul, in Ephesians 6, talks about engaging spiritual forces of darkness. So let's just read a little bit right off the bat from Ephesians 6 because this is where we get some of this spiritual warfare language. It's a famous passage of Ephesians 6 where Paul's talking about 
putting on the whole armor of God. This is his final word in his letter to the followers of Jesus in Ephesus. So let's just read what he said so we can get familiar with some of this language. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. Okay, so what we know so far is that there's a devil and he has strategies. And those strategies are personal, meaning they're personally tailored for for us. So Paul is saying we, we need to put on all of God's armor so that we'll be able to stand against those re- very real strategies. Here's what he says in verse 12. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. Okay, so he's just kind of being as blunt as possible here. Our real fight is not against the physical enemies we see in our life. Our real fight is against unseen enemies, and these are evil rulers and authorities that that we don't really uh, acknowledge or perceive in our physical world. He, He goes on. These uh, were fighting against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Sounds pretty daunting. (laughs) Uh, Therefore, so he's saying because all of this is pretty daunting, therefore put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground. And then he goes on to talk about the kind of armor we need to put on, the belt of truth, the body armor of righteousness, for shoes, the the peace that comes when we spread the good news of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. So he runs through that these are the things that we put on to enter into this battle and come out of it um, unscathed. Uh, So... Uh, this is his final word to them, so he's trying to make a point. He's, he's trying to say, look, don't just focus on the surface explanations for the difficulties and struggles that you're involved in. Pay attention also to what's going on in this sort of unseen world and recognize that there is are things going on that are strategic and designed by this enemy that we all have who intends to steal and kill and destroy. So this is where we get this kind of language, and it's not surprising that we might even overuse this language because Paul speaks so strongly about all this stuff. So it raises the question, though, what is and isn't demonic? So, for instance, what, how does all of this relate to psychological and emotional health, too? So Jay Pathak, in our first episode in this series, two, two episodes ago, mentioned an encounter he had with a a guy on the street, he was with a friend out on the street, uh, talking, stopping, praying for people, talking with people, and they met this guy who they were talking to, and, and Jay started to kind of lean into this guy a little bit uh, about Jesus, and the guy suddenly uh, lunged at him and bit his arm and wouldn't let go. And Jay finally got it, kind of got him off him, and the guy, the guy said back to Jay, why are you bothering them? Stop bothering them. They, they help keep me safe. And then the guy ran off. And Jay's friend looked at him and said, man, that guy's mentally ill. And Jay said, well, yes, probably, but also there's something else going on there. It's not just that he's mentally ill. The way that he responded and, and his the thing that he just said to me indicates that there is also a demonic presence in the man. So you can have both things happening at once, and that makes it even more confusing. So 
hey, should we be doing spiritual warfare right now, or should I just balance my checkbook better? Um, should I be doing spiritual warfare right now, or should I wear shoes that fit my feet so they don't hurt? Um, should I be doing spiritual warfare right now, or should I just ask for forgiveness for the person that I've harmed who's now angry at me? Because we're human beings, we like formulas, and we like quick fixes, and we like black and white. So uh, those who buy into what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 6, and, and they buy into it deeply, they think that every problem, no matter what it is, is a spiritual warfare problem. Uh, and those that think that what Paul is talking about is fine for the Bible, but doesn't have any bearing on today's life, they never consider that there might be something going on in the unseen world that they should maybe pay attention to. So there's the extremes that we have. Steph Hilbury, the other day when we were kind of uh, shaping this episode today, she was telling me literally that she knew someone who got a blister on her foot while she was on vacation because she wore shoes that were too tight, and she decided to do spiritual warfare against the enemy who was giving her a blister on her foot. And Steph, Steph was basically saying that's an example of how you know somebody can see a demon behind every rock when actually you just need to get better fitting shoes. <laughs> so all of this, all of this is held in balance and intention in a healthy Jesus following life. Uh, the 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 point though is to try to figure out well when is it right to enter into spiritual warfare. And when is it not really an issue of spiritual warfare? It's something else. So that's what we're going to explore today. Um, Steph mentioned also, uh, here's just a recommendation uh, uh, for a book that you might want to pick up and read about this. She really loves the, the book Sit, Walk, Stand by Watchman Lee. I really resonate with the reason why Steph loves this book so much. Um, uh, Watchman Lee comes at spiritual warfare from a place of rest. He's not worried. He's not overwhelmed. He's not scared by it. He comes from this, all of this from a place of rest. Why? Because the battle's already been won. That's the funny thing about spiritual warfare. We use this battle language, and yet we also know that Jesus in his authority has already stripped all the powers and principalities of all of their authority, and he has it all now. So the battle's really already been won, and yet we still, we are still locked in it. So how can that be? How can we be in a battle that's already been won? A good illustration of this is uh, when the Japanese in World War II gave up, basically waved the white flag and said, we give up now, um, and an armistice was signed, the, there were many, many Japanese soldiers scattered throughout the islands in the Southeast Asia who had burrowed in for the long haul and for decades uh, continued to wage war, even though their country had already capitulated in World War II. They continued to wage war because they either did not know uh, what their country had done, or they refused to accept it, and were going to fight until they died. So literally, uh, for years after the war ended, there were still Japanese fighters on these islands who refused to give up and continued to wage war. Well, that's sort of our situation, too. The battle has been won. That means our ultimate reality has already been set, but that doesn't mean that our, the enemy of God and those that he's convinced to join him aren't still trying to fight and kill and destroy. The only power that Satan has left now is to try to break the heart of God by destroying his beloved. 
And so he, he does have strategies to do that. It's ironic, though, that if, 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 uh, if, if we were more cognizant of our own authority in the moment, that we would simply, in a relaxed way, um, tell those demonic forces and, and resist those strategic forces with a relaxed authority. So there, there's sort of the tension in this whole deal. Now, the terminology, of course, is biblical, but battle language has become sort of pervasive in the Church, sort of overweighted sometimes in the Church. It feels like it starts to dominate the true message of that Paul had to give, by the way, which was, as we said in the last episode, in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, um, I've determined to know nothing but Jesus and Him crucified. One caution, one boundary, you know, maybe those bumper bumper guards in the bowling alley, that's a good way to think about it, is we never want to get overly impressed or overly fixated on uh, spiritual battle language. Uh, the bumper on the other side of the bowling lane is we never want to diminish it and make believe that it doesn't exist. So, is our focus on Jesus, or um, is it on spiritual warfare throughout the day? Well, it's both. <laughs> it starts with a focus of Jesus and an acknowledgement of spiritual warfare. But here's a, maybe a story of how to d- discern our way through this in a balanced way. In our small group, we I've mentioned before, we did a whole night where we focused on our relationship with Satan, and it was a, uh, a conversation that these kids had not really had in their church youth groups or anything, at least not to this extent. So there was a lot of questions that it raised, and uh, there was a lot of energy in the room, and, and um, my wife was saying toward the end of that time, man, we need to do a second second one of these small groups, because look at all of the interest this is gauged. And I had said to her, I'm really, I, I, I have a catch in me about that. I don't really want to do that. There's something not right about that. And she kind of looked at me perplexed, and uh, but I understand why she was saying that, because right, right toward the end, one of the uh, kids in our group who's, uh, I, I would say, from uh, a, a very strong Christian home, and probably might, what you might say is a charismatic-leaning, strong Christian home, he had been raised in an environment where spiritual warfare was sort of a natural thing for him, so this conversation we were having, he just got very animated because he knew a lot about it, and toward the end, he said in front of the whole group to me, he said, you know, we, we should do another uh, small group on this, and maybe we could individually go around to each person in the group, and we could lay hands on them and pray pray against the demonic forces, anything that has is, that is infected anyone here. And he kind of threw this out, and it kind of, the room kind of got quiet. <laughs> and But for him, it was a very natural thing to suggest, and I just thanked him for his suggestion and said, you know, uh, Bev and I will figure out what we're going to be doing going forward, and we uh, decided not to do a follow-up small group time specifically on that. We we kind of uh, went at it in a different way. But the reason I'm telling you this story is that I knew as soon as this young guy said this that my my intrinsic sense was this would be easy to get kind of sidelined um, in, a, in our focus, off on sort of the excitement and intrigue and even sexiness of talking about spiritual warfare and actually praying for people against demonic spirits and things like that. There's a kind of a magnetic draw, and I want the only magnetic draw to be toward Jesus. I want this spiritual warfare stuff to, to have its proper place 
and not be overemphasized, because Jesus didn't overemphasize it. He did lots of things. He didn't just engage demonic forces. He engaged people on an emotional and intellectual and, and uh, physical way as well. He, he was not overly uh, obsessed about demonic forces or spiritual forces. He was holistic in his approach with people. So Jesus, uh, in fact, related with demonic forces in lots of different ways. Sometimes it was, a, it was more of a confrontation, uh, you know, a, a back-and-forth confrontation. Sometimes it was like snapping your fingers, go out, time to go. Sometimes it was a distance relationship, you know, he he, uh, the, the Canaanite woman who uh, badgered him into uh, healing her daughter, she was possessed by a demon, and he never even went near that daughter. He just, from a distance, said, the demon's gone now, you can go home. So sometimes he had to put his hands on somebody. Sometimes the demonic forces bartered with him, um, wanted to, uh, you know, get a better destiny <laughs> than what, what they thought Jesus was going to send them to. It was all over the board, but... but in every case, Jesus treated these interactions very similarly to the interactions he had with people that, just regular people. He, he interacted with these things as if there was no, no real difference. So he interacted with people with authority, and he interacted with unseen spiritual forces with authority in the very same way. He was never impressed by the pyrotechnics of demonic activity or Satan. He was never impressed by their deceptions or lies. He sometimes was patient enough to listen to what they had to say, but when he got impatient, he told them to go, and they had to go. So he was all over the board with this, but one thing we know for sure is he was not fixated on it. It was just one aspect of a healthy, holistic life. So our goal, then, is to uh, integrate this whole aspect of spiritual warfare into our lives in a relaxed, non-weird, everyday way. <laughs> so uh, I learned my lesson about this, by the way, probably six or seven years ago. I was, I was going to a work retreat with uh, the other leaders in my, in my department, in my organization, and there was about, oh, I think a total of six or seven or eight of us going on this retreat, and we we're going to one of the leaders in our, our area had a, a cabin that was about an hour and a half away from our headquarters, so we were all going to spend a couple of nights at his cabin on a leadership retreat. And so I had four or five guys in my car, and we had about an hour and a half to drive to this cabin, and we were just telling stories, and one of my close friends here at work knew a little snippet of something that, that was a part of my life. I really didn't talk about it that much, but um, I had a very long season in my life where, with my friend Bob Krulish, I was involved in praying for people who were demonically oppressed or possessed. And it, it's too long of a story to go into now how I got involved in that, but it was a very long process of sort of um, uh, learning um, how to move in, in a way that helped to set people free. Um, and uh, Bob was really a, a mentor to me in this. And so I got into a lot of interesting situations praying for people about stuff like this and having to discern between is this an emotional issue, a mental issue, or is it a spiritual issue? I had a few what you might call uh, semi-spectacular encounters in retrospect. They seem normal in the moment, but when you tell it as a story, it sounds fantastical. And so my close friend in the car there said, you said something about this thing you did the other day. What was that again? 
So I sort of innocently said, oh, well, sometimes I'm involved in this in this uh, in in helping to set captives free with my friend Bob Krulish, who are these people are demonically oppressed or and the guys in the car went, what? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> and I so I described the encounter I had had that week and what had happened in it. And while I was describing this encounter, I realized, oh my gosh, this sounds like a movie right now. This sounds so out there, so beyond what normal people experience. Now I'm embarrassed that I'm telling the story. <laughs> but I finished telling the story anyway. And when I was finished, um, I, th- I think everyone in that car was sort of blown away. And I immediately felt like I had made a mistake in so casually telling this story. I felt like I should have been uh, wiser in recognizing how different my experiences in this arena were from an, from a person's a Christian, a Jesus follower's normal experiences. They were quite different, and I didn't like the change that happened in the car. Now, I didn't like the change in the way people saw me all of a sudden. Like, uh, you, you know, if you've listened to a couple episodes ago when we did the interview with Jay Pathak and Conrad Gimpf, Jay told some stories that were, like, extraordinary. He told a story about uh, one of his Africa stories about a village that an animist village that worshipped um, evil spirits, and and that a tree, a large looming tree in that village, was said to have been inhabited by evil spirits. And when Jay and his team arrived and started taking a stand against this uh, climate of evil that was in this village, um, uh, a couple days after they first arrived, that tree was hit by lightning and burned to the ground. So you hear a story like that, and you think, whoa. <laughs> um, and, oh, it's a good thing Jay Pathak is doing that, because, wow, he's he's like super spiritual. So that something like that happened in the car that I didn't like, because it it changed the dynamic of how those guys related to me. Now, it, one thing that was good is that they were able to—we were all able to laugh about it, and I could laugh at myself and all this, but um, I, I didn't want to portray something— that was a part of my life that made it seem like uh, like like there was this weird aspect of my life that um, that wasn't relatable to a normal everyday life, and I just regretted the way I told the story. I think is it, it's just because it freaked everyone out, and that's not the point of all this. On the other end of the scale, um, I go to a church I love with a pastor I love right now, and his focus and his passion is to help people who have sort of not been connected to the Church for a long time take their baby steps into a relationship with Jesus and then grow deep. He's a quite a deep teacher, but he's very accessible for people that have kind of been turned off by Church or don't see themselves going to a Church. He's incredibly accessible for those people. So as part of that mission and passion, um, he, he, he really doesn't delve into arenas like spiritual warfare on purpose because it can sound really like, what? <laughs> this is the reason I stopped going to church. So uh, I sometimes find it, I, 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 for myself, sitting there in the congregation, re- recognizing that these arenas aren't really addressed very often, I sometimes think inside, this is a bit unbalanced, and I understand why he's doing it, but in order to accurately live this life, we have to acknowledge that these kinds of things happen, and that Jesus wants us to learn and grow in them. 
It's just not the primary focus in our church, and I appreciate why it is, but I find myself also longing for balance. So, in the interests of balance, I thought it would be interesting to uh, go to someone that uh, most of us consider sort of the fountain of balance in the evangelical world. I read a little bit about C.S. Lewis's introduction to the Screwtape Letters last episode, and I thought it'd be good to have a little bit of a, a tiny little micro story time here on the podcast today to take a couple of places from things that C.S. Lewis wrote to give us balance in how we approach spiritual warfare. No one, in my view, is more balanced in this arena than C.S. Lewis. He is an intellectual, uh, but he also was acknowledging and open to the reality of this unseen spiritual world. It filters into everything he wrote, but not in a crazy, weird way. He just approached it in a what has always felt to me like a very solid way. So I thought it would be interesting uh, to read a couple of passages from two different books from C.S. Lewis to get us really thinking about the boundaries around uh, spiritual warfare. So the first one I'm going to read is from the fourth book in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's called The Silver Chair. It's one of my favorites. And uh, there's a scene in here that's just riveting for me, and it, it really does capture some of the, uh, the ethic of what it means to be involved in spiritual warfare. So I thought I'd read this. We'll say a couple of things about this, and then I'm going to read you a little passage from another book that C.S. Lewis wrote called That Hideous Strength. So um, I'm reading from The Silver Chair, and this is in chapter 12. This chapter is called The Queen of Underland. And in this story, the uh, children of Narnia have discovered that Prince Rillian has been captured by the evil witch, and... Uh, they are they are attempting to try to rescue and release him from her power. And so I'm going to pick up the story here. Prince Rillian has been captured and imprisoned in a silver chair in a subterranean uh, cavern, and the witch intends to keep him there and rule over Narnia because the the rightful authority in Narnia has been captured by her. So um, let me just pick it up in chapter 12 here, and we'll read a little bit, then we'll talk about it right after that. Two earthmen entered, but instead of advancing into the room, they placed themselves one on each side of the door and bowed deeply. They were followed immediately by the last person whom anyone had expected or wished to see, the Lady of the Green Kirtle, the Queen of Underland. She stood dead still in the doorway. Now, this is the evil witch. And they could see her eyes moving as she took in the whole situation. The three strangers and that's the children, the silver chair destroyed, and the prince free with his sword in his hand. So she turned very white, so the very thing she hoped could never happen, the witch now sees the prince has been freed. She turned white, but Jill thought it was the sort of whiteness that comes over some people's faces, not when they're frightened, but when they're angry. For a moment, the witch fixed her eyes on the prince, and there was murder in them, and then she seemed to change her mind. Leave us, she said to the two earthmen, and let none disturb us till I call on pain of death. The gnomes padded away obediently, and the witch queen shut and locked the door. Now, from this point on, the witch is a personification of Satan in this story. So I want you to pay close attention to what the witch does and why, 
and how the children and their allies battle back against the witch's influence. That's what we're paying attention to here. So the witch says, how now, my lord prince? Has your nightly fit not yet come upon you, or is it over so soon? Why stand you here unbound? Who are these aliens? And is it they who have destroyed the chair, which was your only safety? So she had convinced the prince that she was protecting him from harm by binding him to this silver chair. And now he is unbound from it. He, he believed this. He, he believed that his captivity was really his safety. And now that's been destroyed, and that's what she's starting to question. Prince Rillian shivered as she spoke to him. And no wonder. It is not easy to throw off in half an hour an enchantment which has made one a slave for ten years. Then, speaking with a great effort, he said, Madam, there will be no more need of that chair. And you, who have told me a hundred times how deeply you pitied me for the sorceries by which I was bound, will doubtless hear with joy that they are now ended forever. There was, it seems, some small error in your ladyship's way of treating them. These, my true friends, have delivered me. I am now in my right mind, and there are two things I will say to you. First, as for your ladyship's design of putting me at the head of an army of earthmen so that I may break out into the overworld and there, by main force, make myself king over some nation that never did me wrong, murdering their natural lords and holding their throne as a bloody and foreign tyrant, now that I know myself, I do utterly abhor and renounce it as plain villainy. And second, I am the king's son of Narnia, Rillian, the only child of Caspian, tenth of that name, who some call Caspian the seafarer. Therefore, madam, it is my purpose, as it is also my duty, to depart suddenly from your highness's court into my own country. Please it to you to grant me and my friends safe conduct and a guide through your dark realm. So here Rillian is saying, I understand the deception that you had me under. Um, I, I abhor what you, were, you were, what you were going to make me do. And now I assert my authority as a son of the king that I'm going to leave and you have no longer any power over me. So this is where the, the battle sits right now. Now the witch said nothing at all, but moved gently across the room, always keeping her face and eyes very steadily towards the prince. When she had come to a little ark set in the wall, not too far from the fireplace, she opened it and took out first a handful of green powder. This she threw on the fire. It did not blaze much, but a very sweet and drowsy smell came from it. And all through the conversation which followed, that smell grew stronger and filled the room and made it harder to think. Secondly, she took out a musical instrument rather like a mandolin. She began to play it with her fingers, a steady, monotonous thrumming that you didn't notice after a few minutes. But the less you noticed it, the more it got into your brain and your blood. This also made it hard to think. After she had thrummed for a time, and the sweet smell was now strong, she began speaking in a sweet, quiet voice. Narnia, she said. Narnia? I've often heard your lordship utter that name in your ravings. Dear prince, you're very sick. There's no land called Narnia. Yes, there is, though, ma'am, said Puddleglum. And Puddleglum was uh, one of the allies trying to rescue Rillian. You see, I happen to have lived there all my life. Indeed, said the witch, tell me, I pray you, where, where that country is? Well, up there, said Puddleglum, stoutly pointing overhead. I, I don't know exactly where. Well, how, said the queen with a kind of soft musical laugh, is there a country up among the stones and mortar of the roof? No, said Puddleglum, struggling a little to get his breath. It's in Overworld. And what or where, pray, is this? How do you call it? Overworld? Oh, don't be so silly, said Scrub. 
this is one of the children speaking, who was there to rescue the prince. Oh, don't be so silly, said Scrub, who was fighting hard against the enchantment of the sweet smell and the thrumming. As if you didn't know. It's up above, up where you can see the sky and the sun and the stars. Why, you've been there yourself. We met you there. I cry you mercy, little brother, laughed the witch. You couldn't have heard a lovelier laugh. I have no memory of that meeting. But we often meet our friends in strange places when we dream. And unless all dreamed alike, you must not ask them to remember it. Madam, said the prince sternly, I have already told your grace that I am the king's son of Narnia. And shalt be, dear friend, said the witch in a soothing voice as if she was humoring a child, shalt be king of many imagined lands in thy fancies. Well, we've been there too, snapped Jill. She was very angry because she, she could feel enchantment getting a hold of her every moment. But of course, the very fact that she could feel it showed that it had not yet fully worked. And thou art queen of Narnia too, I doubt not, pretty one, said the witch in the same coaxing, half-mocking tone. I'm nothing of the sort, said Jill, stamping her foot. We come from another world. Why, this is a prettier game than the other, said the witch. Tell us, little maid, where is this other world? What ships and chariots go between it and ours? Of course, a lot of things darted into Jill's head at once. And then it goes on to all of the things she remembered from that world. But... Jill couldn't remember the names of the things in our world, and this time it didn't come into her head that she was being enchanted, for now the magic was in its full strength. And of course, the more enchanted you get, the more certain you feel that you're not enchanted at all. She found herself saying, and at the moment it was a relief to say, no, I suppose that other world must be all a dream. Yes, it is all a dream, said the witch, always thrumming. Yes, all a dream, said Jill. There never was such a world, said the witch. No, said Jill and Scrub, never was such a world. There never was any world but mine, said the witch. There never was any world but yours, said they. Puddleglum was still fighting hard. I don't know rightly what you mean by a world, he said, talking like a man who hasn't had enough air. But you can't play that fiddle till your fingers drop off, and you, but you can play that fiddle till your fingers drop off, and still you won't make me forget Narnia, and the whole overworld too. We'll never see it again, I shouldn't wonder. You may have blotted it out and turned it dark like this, for all I know. Nothing more likely, but I know I was there once. I've seen the sky full of stars. I've seen the sun coming up out of the sea of a morning and sinking behind the mountains at night. And I've seen him up in the midday sky when I couldn't look at him for brightness. Puddleglum's words had a very rousing effect. The other three all breathed again and looked at one another like people newly awaked. Why, there it is, cried the prince. Of course, the blessing of Aslan. Aslan is, of course, the, the Christ character in these stories. The blessing of Aslan upon this honest marsh wiggle. We have all been dreaming these last few minutes. How could we have forgotten it? Of course we've all seen the sun. By Job, so we have, said Scrub. Good for you, Puddle Glum. You're the only one of us with any sense, I do believe. Then came the witch's voice, cooing softly like the voice of a wood pigeon from the high elms in the old garden at three o'clock in the middle of a sleepy summer afternoon. And it said, what is this sun that you all speak of? Do you mean anything by, by the word? Well, yes, we jolly well do, said Scrub. Can you tell me what it's like, asked the witch. And then Scrub goes on to explain what the sun is really like. And the witch continues to undermine how fantastical and ridiculous it sounds when you have to try to explain what the sun is. And in the end, she says, there is no sun. And they all said nothing. She repeated in a softer, deeper voice, there is no sun. And after a pause and after a struggle in their minds, all four of them said together, You're right, 
there is no son. And the story continues on where they reference Aslan again, and she does the, the witch does the same thing. She starts to engage their belief about this huge cat with a mane that, that they all describe as the, the uh, one authority in Narnia, and the witch begins to undermine all of the ideas about this large cat as like a fantasy of little children. So in the end, the witch is able to soothe them and talk them out of the truth, until finally, in the end, what Puddleglum does is he recognizes that they're all being enchanted, and he sticks his foot in the roaring fire and uses pain to wake him up out of the sort of the enchanted slumber that the witch has talked them into. I love this scene because what Lewis has captured so well is that real spiritual warfare isn't really about um, what you see in a horror movie, <laughs> where you're battling these dark, monstrous uh, influences. It's nothing like that. It's really doing battle with the plausible-sounding lies that we hear every day, the things that infect our interior narrative and make us believe things that simply aren't true. But they sound true in the moment. And one of the keys in this scene is the children and the prince and the other rescuers um, constantly going back to remembering what they have known is true. And this is why we focus and pay ridiculous attention to Jesus, by the way, because once you have focused and paid ridiculous attention to the heart of Jesus, it's hard to forget that heart. And when you are locked in the midst of your own enchantment, where you're being talked into, um, caving into, or inviting into a sin or evil influence in your life, remembering who Jesus is and remembering what his heart's like is our only path forward. And that's the picture that uh, Lewis paints here. The other thing that he does is he embraces the beauty of pain and, and how pain brings us back to a dependent and clear relationship with Jesus. It kind of wipes away all the fog from um, all of the things that we have started to believe. Pain brings us back to the fundamental truths, and Lewis embraces that here. Let me read one more quick little scene from that this book, That Hideous Strength, which is the third book in Lewis's fantasy series, um, and this is a story of a spiritual war. So it's a fantastic book. I recommend you read it. It's a set in a college in environment. It's an extraordinary book about the mechanics of spiritual warfare. But I just want to read you a short, a very short passage here where one of the protagonists in the story is locked into a torture room that doesn't look like a torture room. So he's paraded past scary-looking monsters um, in this house that he's been imprisoned in, paraded past it to uh, a room in the house that looks normal at first. So let me just uh, read this short, short two or three paragraphs here, and think about... Um, how the protagonist here, his name is Mark, um, is being leveraged and warred upon in this torture room. After that, Frost took Mark from the cell and gave him a meal in some neighboring room. It was also lit by artificial light and had no window. The professor stood perfectly still and watched him while he ate. Mark did not know what the food was and did not much, did not much like, it, like it, but he was far too hungry by now to refuse it, if refusal had been possible. When the meal was over, Frost led him to the anteroom of the head, and once more he was stripped and reclothed in surgeon, surgeon's overalls and a mask. 
Then he was brought in into the presence of the gaping and dribbling head. This is the monster that this, uh, our protagonist, Mark, encounters. To his surprise, Frost took not the slightest notice of it. He led him across the room to a narrow little door with a pointed arch in the far wall. Here he paused and said, go in. You will speak to no one of what you find here. I will return presently. Then he opened the door and Mark went in. The room at first sight was an anticlimax. It appeared to be an empty committee room with a long table, eight or nine chairs, some pictures, and oddly enough, a large stepladder in one corner. Here also there were no windows. It was lit by an electric light which produced, better than Mark had ever seen it produced before, the illusion of daylight, of a cold gray place out of doors. This, combined with the absence of a fireplace, made it seem chilly, though the temperature was not, in fact, very low. A man of trained sensibility would have seen at once that the room was ill-proportioned, not grotesquely so, but sufficiently to produce dislike. It was too high and too narrow. Mark felt the effect without analyzing the cause, and the effect grew on him as time passed. Sitting, staring about him, he next noticed the door and thought at first that it, he was the victim of some optical illusion. It took him quite a long time to prove to himself that he was not. The point of the arch was not in the center. The whole thing was lopsided. Once again, the error was not gross. The thing was near enough to the true to deceive you for a moment and to go on teasing the mind even after the deception had been unmasked. Involuntarily, one kept shifting the head to find positions from which it would look right after all. He turned round and sat with his back to it. One mustn't let it become an obsession. Then he noticed the spots on the ceiling. They were not mere specks of dirt or discoloration. They were deliberately painted on. Little round black spots placed at irregular intervals on the pale mustard-colored surface. There were not a great many of them, perhaps 30, or, or was it a 100? He determined that he would not fall into the trap of trying to count them. They'd be too hard to count. They were so irregularly placed. Or weren't they? Now that his eyes were growing used to them, and one couldn't help noticing that there were five in that little group to the right, their arrangement seemed to hover on the verge of regularity. They suggested some kind of pattern. Their peculiar ugliness consisted in the very fact that they kept on suggesting it and then frustrating the expectation thus aroused. Suddenly, he realized that this was another trap. He fixed his eyes on the table, and there were spots on the table too, white ones, shiny white spots, not quite round, and arranged apparently to correspond to the spots on the ceiling. Or were they? No, of course not. And it goes on in this story. So everything in the room that Mark encounters is slightly off, and the deeper he notices the slightly off, the more insane he starts to get, the more uprooted his identity is, the more unbalanced he feels. So he realizes in the end that if he doesn't escape from this room, he's going to go insane because he can't stop thinking about all of the things about this room that are slightly off. And this is really central to how uh, Satan attacks. He attacks us with the slightly off, not the hugely off. We're not tempted into hugely off. We're tempted only by the slightly off, and it starts to work on our minds. It starts to convince us one way or another, and we somehow need to redirect our attention back to what is true and good and balanced. Again, our salvation in this is a focus on the heart of Jesus, which is true and good and balanced. Against the heart of Jesus, everything else is tilted and off. That's where we redirect our focus in the midst of spiritual warfare. We never go in our own strength. We always come back to Jesus, what is true. 
about this. And if, it, if there is something slightly off intended to enchant us away from him, we stand against it. So let's wrap up with a few do's and don'ts here relative to spiritual warfare. Let me go over the do's, and then I'll do the don'ts. So one do is say no if you don't feel comfortable, for instance, with somebody wanting to pray with you in a spiritual warfare way. If, if you don't invite it, just say no. Uh, everything in the spiritual warfare world needs to be uh, instigated by invitation. So if you, in, if you ask to pray for someone and they don't feel comfortable, then don't. Um, and if someone wants to pray for you and you don't feel comfortable, then don't. All of this is based on invitation and comfortability. Again, the, the second do is depend on Jesus. Um, this is what we've been talking about. He is the anchor point for all of this. And the way that we—one primary way we depend on him is to learn his voice by reading the Bible, to, to go over and over the stories of Jesus until his voice, his smell, his habits, his inclinations become second nature to us. This is what will draw us back when we're in the midst of our own enchantments. So another do is to watch for exploitation. Uh, uh, if there's an over-emotional environment or uh, an environment that is pressing in to refocus our attention away from Jesus and onto something that seems more exciting, watch out for that. Um, watch for any exploitation where someone is using uh, spiritual warfare to gain power or influence or authority. Another do is to stay relaxed. As we've mentioned many times, Jesus was relaxed, so we stay relaxed. And we can be relaxed because we understand the authority of Jesus and that he's given us that authority um, to use in our lives. We have his authority. And uh, the, the way that we do this in everyday life is, I, I, last week I was at Starbucks and a guy came up to me, this never happens by the way, but he said, aren't you Rick Lawrence? And I said, yeah. And he said, I just finished reading Spiritual Grid and man, it changed my wife's life and my life, and he wanted to talk to me about it. And it turns out he's a youth pastor in Denver, and he told me a little story about um, his youth group that had both whites and blacks in it, and he was having trouble, even though he'd been at the church for 14 years, he was having trouble getting that, those groups merged and integrated together. And he mentioned that uh, he talked to a teacher in his area who also had the same problem at school, so I barely met this guy. I was talking to him for five minutes, and I just thought, I was just prompted, and I threw this out to him. I said, you know, it sounds like you've been really struggling with this for a while, and you've also told me that it's also true that this, this tension exists outside of your ministry and in your general area. I said, you might consider as leaders in your youth ministry of stopping and praying against this stronghold, this stronghold of racial enmity that is in your geographic area. And he said, I've never thought about that. And he got really animated and said, I'm going to go do that And with my leadership team. We've never thought to do that. Well, this is an example in everyday life of uh, when you hear something like this and you feel prompted and prodded by the Spirit, that there's something else going on just more than the physical realm, that, that maybe there's a spiritual stronghold that has taken grip in this particular area that the, the followers of Jesus can take a stand against. And uh, sometimes taking a stand in the, in the spiritual warfare realm is the most efficient thing you can do. It's like when uh, Peter tried to thwart Jesus, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. He just took authority and moved on. Um, that was efficient. Rather than arguing with Peter about whether he was really going to die or not, 
Jesus just took authority and said, get behind me. So sometimes we get tempted into arguing about stuff when really, uh, if we were paying attention, we would notice that there's a spiritual element here that just needs to be stood against. So we take our authority and we move on. Last, let's look at a few don'ts. Don't let spiritual warfare become the focus of your life. Don't be titillated by any of this. And that means don't look for supernatural experiences. Don't seek them out. It's not really part of our holistic life to seek out the supernatural. Jesus didn't. He lived supernaturally and naturally the same. It was a seamless existence. He did not treat one or the other differently. They were all normal life. That means we don't go looking for fights, for instance. The fight will come to us. We don't have to go find it. And also, don't assume that there's a formula, phrases uh, that we use like incantations, like in the blood of Jesus and things like that. Those are in Scripture, but when sometimes they're used by people as if they were special spells, like, like we've mentioned before, like they're Harry Potter spells or something like that. Don't do it. Followers of Jesus are quite clear with Simon the Magician that this, this whole business of, of spiritual power and authority is not about tricks and incantations. In fact, that are, those things are repugnant to Jesus. So um, even if it's in the Bible, don't use it like it's an incantation, like the, there's something, something powerful in the words themselves, that you cast that spell right. Really, the only power we have is the power of Jesus moving in us. Finally, don't live as if you're an extra on the show's Stranger Things. Um, don't live like uh, apocalyptic monsters are all around us, and that we live in fear of those monsters taking us over. Again, there's nothing, nothing in the world that is not under the authority of Jesus any longer, and if you are in him, you have his protection. There you have it. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can find out more information, but in further detail on PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. You're just looking for our podcast section in Season 3, episode 34. And uh, Next week, we start a new series on discipleship, and we kick off with a uh, special interview I did with John Eldridge, author of Wild at Heart and Waking the Dead and many other incredible books. Um, I chose him as my primary influencer and catalyst for discipleship in the last 20 years. Uh, I, I believe John Eldridge has had a bigger influence than anyone else I know on what discipleship really is, and I had a fantastic 40-minute conversation with him a couple months ago. The uh, interview will be published in a special edition of Group Magazine coming out in September, but you, you get to listen to it next week, so please tune in next week to hear John Eldridge. Again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts, and we'll talk again next time.